Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder, and this is a show that asks old questions about new technology. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on Old Fashioned Radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, our guest is uh, a colleague of mine, a friend, someone I'm really, really glad to uh, have with us, Stephen Frost. He's an artist and instructor in media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder and hosts the Colorado Sewing Rebellion at the Boulder Public Library. His work has appeared in numerous places, including the Museum of Craft and Folk Art uh, in LA and the Denver Art Museum. The question that his work is bringing to us today is around the old technology uh, of textiles. What's new about textiles? What is it about this this craft, this tech that we are wearing and using every day uh, that we might learn from, that we might interrogate? Um, this is a, a kind of technology that's so familiar that many of us don't even think of it as technology. Um, but as we'll learn from Stephen, there's, there's a lot that we can learn from, um, from the things that we're wearing. Now, they, they might seem like, for instance, the opposite of advanced computers, but um, textiles and, and computers have actually had a really interesting relationship. Uh, in the mid-19th century, Charles Babbage, the British kind of uh, freelance scientist, studied textile looms in France to develop um, the ideas that ended up um, uh, motivating and, and uh, inspiring his difference engine and analytic engine, the precursors to the modern computer. Uh, essentially, if you look at it historically, the computer is a loom for information, taking that same logic of the loom of spinning thread together, of, of um, mechanizing this, uh, this process that was once done by humans, um, and transferring it to the processing, the threading of information. Fabric was also at the center of vital conflicts in the 19th century, slavery in the South and the factory um, labor relations struggles uh, in the North. Um, and today, while places like the U.S. might seem uh, like post-industrial information societies in certain places, um, both textiles and computers are meanwhile being produced uh, in, uh, in some of the same parts of the world with some of these same industrial processes um, uh, uh, and out of our view, out of our vision, yet still um, uh, filling our world and populating our lives. There's also a, a, a comparison around the question of, of repair. Um, there's a dual de-skilling that has happened to many of us where we've, we've forgotten how to repair our own clothes. We've forgotten how to repair the machines that we depend on. And often business models are developed around us to prevent us from having those skills. It's no longer valuable um, or it no longer appears valuable uh, to know how to repair both the, the threads and the machines uh, that, uh, that uh, kind of clothe our lives. Um, so Stephen will help take us into some of these questions. Um, and if you're in the area in particular, um, he's in, involved in building a movement around uh, his Colorado Sewing Rebellion, uh, around this, um, uh, uh, this reskilling around textiles uh, that you can be part of. So Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Nathan. So happy to be here. So how did your work uh, begin revolving around textiles? I've, I've seen so much of your work. Uh, I've, I've uh, uh, gotten the chance to, uh, to talk about it with you in a, uh, lots of times, but I don't actually know how it kind of folded itself into your life. Um, yeah. Uh, well, like a lot I'm of... I'm really playing up the puns today. <laughs> no, well, <laughs> well, you can have a conversation about textiles without like weave, saying like weaving together, or threading the concept. Uh, that's usually the title of most exhibitions that, uh, that I've been in over the last 20 years. <laughs> but um, no, uh, when I was an undergraduate, um, I was into painting and video work. And I did actually two semesters of really intensive experimental video and I loved making that work but then I would go home and 
I felt like I had made nothing because there was nothing tangible. Like there was nothing in the world that I was making. Um, and so I started doing more printmaking and painting the next semester. And I just got a collection of these textiles that I'd had for years and years. And I put them all up on the wall. Mostly it was like underwear. And I'd saved for some random reason, my own underwear, which I'd saved for, I don't know why. And I put them all up on the wall and I started making paintings of them. And I made some really terrible paintings. And my painting professor said, you know, that composition you made on the wall of all the underwear is actually far more interesting than your paintings. And I was like, yeah, it is. And then I was like, yeah, I like this, this idea of like something that relates directly to the body, something that we see in our daily lives, something that uh, we can um, have these real emotional and visceral um, connections to. That to me was like this breakthrough in my studio practice when I was still just finishing up my undergrad. Um, and then I left undergrad and I, um, right at the end of the last two years of undergrad, I got a sewing machine and I made uh, clothing for some very uh, luckily poorly documented drag performances. And um, uh, and I uh, kept making work uh, with the sewing machine and use it as my primary tool um, after undergrad. I lived in an apartment in outside of D.C. and my sewing machine broke pretty severely and I didn't work anymore. And I had sleeping on the floor. I didn't really have a bed. And I went and bought a new sewing machine. <laughs> and it was just kind of vital uh, to my practice since then. So you started out with underwear and drag performances. And how, how did you learn to sew? Like, how did you learn some of the basic skills? Well, a part of it is, is that my mom was a nurse. And so my mom worked nights a lot growing up. And she was never, my mom was never one that was like super stuck up on gender performance or as far as like male and female roles in a family. And she um, was oddly progressive for an old Yankee um, in her own way. And we, uh, I was a child of the nineties. So I loved patchy. I loved to put hippie patches on my pants. You know, when you would cut up the side of the pants and then you'd kind of quilt up patches up the side of it. I'm sure many totally. listeners in Boulder know exactly what I'm talking about. And the about. pants were bigger then. Yeah. You had a lot yeah. more like width to work yeah, with. Yeah, and you made them into bell bottoms. Basically, <laughs> you took straight leg pants and you made them into bell bottoms. And that was the cool thing at the time. And my mom was like, okay, cool. Well, I'm busy working. So I don't, <laughs> and my dad was like, I'm not doing that. So she's like, here, how this is how you use the sewing machine. And she just was cool. And I just would go into her bedroom and make my terrible hippie pants and patch my clothes when I ripped them. And it was just a very open, um, just a very open experience. And I later on actually got more formal education about what I was doing. Cause for a long time, I just sort of like winged it. I don't even know if I knew how to thread the machine. It just like, if I came in the room and it had already been threaded, I would like make something, but if it wasn't threaded, I wouldn't. <laughs> so I've, uh, actually kind of self-taught and worked with um, other colleagues and artists, uh, specifically the artist Carol Francis Lung, who's been a huge influence on my work. Uh, she taught me a lot about what I know about sewing specifically. Mm -hmm. And so maybe this is what where the uh, formal education comes in, but is there like a, a definition of what a textile is, of where the line is drawn between what a textile is and something else? Like what do you what falls into that category? I mean, I, I'm thinking about this question and, you know, what is a textile and what is a garment? And it's so open at this moment. I'm working, I, I work sometimes with plastic material or I work with recycled materials or I used to make these bags out of uh, plastic shopping bags. And I feel like a textile, one time when I was in graduate school, I used to describe them as permeable membranes. And I think that would maybe be the easiest definition. So it's like two permeable membranes uh, joined together. I know that's the most nerdy definition I could think of, but it's like the closest I can get to like, what is a textile? It's usually like, we often call sculptures that are made from textiles soft sculptures and some textile artists like reject it like saying like oh well my sculptures are soft I get it I get how you see me I understand um, but actually it has to do with the idea that you know textiles are permeable uh, they take on the form of the thing often underneath them or the thing that's inside of them um, and they can be um, 
they can be altered and built in all these different ways that say something like wood or other materials just just can't um, and that relationship to the body is also really important to what textiles are they're super early human technology i always uh i give a lecture where i always joke that um the uh, the backstrap loom, which is a type of loom uh, that I use to weave with in, in the community, I always joke that it was the first um, vegan uh, fabric that, that humans made was with the backstrap loom, uh, because it's just you know you could make it from reeds in the river and you could weave those together to make a textile, or you could use wool, or you could use bark. All these different things could be considered textiles that are woven together. Um, it's it's super fascinating. I was just in. Alaska uh, at a Clinket museum uh, this last May and I was looking at all these diving suits that were made in like the 1700s that were made out of um, whale guts and sewn together and they were gorgeous and they were there was this really interesting moment in that uh, community when steel needles were introduced all of the textiles got exceedingly more complicated as soon as the idea of steel needles was because before everyone was making needles out of bones and so you couldn't get that super sharp tip. So this definition of textiles has changed and moves in all these different directions. The suit is made out of whale guts. Yeah, it's made out of whale guts because you can seal like it. your sleeve is a whale gut. Yeah, yeah, it's made out of whale guts. Amazing. Well, it's, it's like a, it's whale guts that, that was entreated and it was a way of making basically like a, um, like a waterproof suit that you would get inside of and go and be in the water for a super long time because, um, you know, it's clinkets were, uh, uh, are a live right on the water. And so they're often in the water and around the water. And, you know, there's no Tyvek or <laughs> Nagahide kind of materials for them to use. And so they invented a lot of their own out of the materials that were available to them at the time. Um, some of them even looked sort of like diving suits that we could understand from like early explorers kind of Wes Anderson style you know and so what were some of the what were some of the practical lessons as you started um, deepening your knowledge of how to do work with textiles what were some of the the tricks that you learned the 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 wisdom that you that you picked up from your teachers um so I think the the practical lessons that I learned was to is is, is hoarding a practical a practical lesson <laughs> um, because I think that's maybe one of them you know one of the first things I think that people make when they make clothes are cut off jeans it's sort of the the earliest form of te garment um, alterations that people make it's like it's hot. And <laughs> these, uh, the bottom of these jeans are out of style, but if I cut them off, they're totally in style and it's fine. And I think that one of the first innovations, and of course those inevitably rip or break. And so I think one of the first lessons that I learned was to like save those bottom parts of the jeans when you cut them off because they make amazing patches. And I think that's something that like my mother and uh, my mentor, Carol Francis Lung, taught me the, to do that. Like, okay, so save this weird little thing put it away because later when your jeans rip you'll want that weird fabric because it matches it perfectly um and now i have a bin full of uh jean legs which i should probably um find better use for <laughs> um they kind of exponentially grow and some of the other lessons of course that you learn is to sort of the thing that's great about sewing specifically in textiles is that it can unless you're sewing in something like silk or vinyl which of course is vinyl is the first thing a young queer textile artist wants to sew with. So I did do lots of that. But for the most part, uh, when you're sewing with cotton or most everyday textiles, you can undo it. And I think that's one of the things, you know, you can pull it out and you can rip the seam, you can open it up. So if you mess up and you make a disaster um, in on, on the sewing machine, it can be undone. And I think knowing that ability that you can take something apart, put it back together, try it again and again, is something that I think was really um, crucial for me to develop my skills. Like, I was just teaching a bunch of young artists how to sew this last weekend, and I was, and we were making um, fanny packs. And I said to them, "This is going to be really hard the first time, but then the second time you make this, it'll be great." And because some of them hadn't didn't have a lot of experience doing things like sewing on zippers or 
put it seeming putting seams together uh it's like they made it three or four times the first time because mm-hmm. <laughs> they just kept taking it apart and putting it back together but that ability of something to really have almost like a command z or <laughs> kind of moment in a phys- in the physical world um it's it's actually like really eye-opening because it does it gives you a lot of ability to make mistakes in your process and to be open to trying new techniques or making something that you think you are absolutely incapable of making and uh um, and just kind of going for it and that and understanding that in textiles and not being afraid of um the kind of consequences of i think you know often in fine arts you learned you would learn specific skills like oil painting and everybody tells you about how expensive red is right or they tell you how expensive the ink for the printmaking is and how um, you have to be super careful and as soon as that black is down on the paper that's it Um, but with textiles there's sort of like this really open there's an openness that you can move back and forth and weaving as well there's a way to do undo and redo and i think that that's something that's really crucial to what a textile is and uh, it's given me a lot of freedom well i want to hear a bit about more about the queerness that you referred to earlier right i mean i i um my kind of first eye-opening moment around textiles was when i was a teenager and i was um traveling across the country i didn't live in colorado at the time and visited uh, my aunt who after you know, a career in unrelated fields had become the director of the Rocky Mountain Quilt Museum in uh, in Golden, and uh, Janet Finley, also a, a accomplished writer uh, and, and author on on these subjects, and an amazing quilter. Um, she she took me through this museum and um, you know broke down for me what should have been obvious but was not to my to my head that this is a a history of you know, a gendered history mm-hmm. that um, uh, is unavailable anywhere else because history has suppressed the voices and experiences of the people who created these quilts, mm-hmm. right? And so it's only accessible through these through these quilts as far as, um, you know, at least uniquely accessible. You know, what does, what, what does textiles open up um, in, in a more recent history of, of gender and, and, and the kind of um, you know, explosion and possibilities of, of gendered experience that we're, you know, that we're, that we're living through. Um, well, one of the really, I, uh, several years ago, I was, uh, before, before I came to Colorado, I did Sewing Rebellion in, um, Los Angeles for, uh, for, for Carol Francis Long, the founder of Sewing Rebellion. We'll get into that in a minute. And, uh, at this, this workshop, people would come in and bring their projects, and Carol had an artist residency, so I ran it for her for about three months. And at one point during it, uh, we reached out to the LGBTQ center and was invited people from there to come down. I had a show there coming up, and I wanted I was going to do an event there. So I was like, "Hey, let's you know, let's make these communities come together." And and it was great. And we had a bunch of uh, queer youth from the LGBTQ center who were trans identified who came down to Sewing Rebellion to alter their own clothes because. You know the bodies that are are like everyday clothing is designed for is a very generic very cisgendered body and i think that the ability and the power of being able to mend sew and alter your own clothes for your body whether that's a trans body a gender non-conforming body or a cisgender body it's just it's amazing it's really empowering and it opens up a lot of doors and i'm not just talking about performative costume um, either I'm talking about like your everyday clothes, just being able to fit them for your actual body um, was a huge thing for a lot of the participants that we had in that workshop. And I've actually had several other, you know, throughout the years, several other people um, have a similar experience. And I think that, of course, textiles relate to gender and body and representation and costume. And that's very much embedded into our culture. And it's and it's funny that you're, um, well, it's the history of quilts itself, right, has very much uh, been very fraught with uh, gendering and misgendering and misrepresentation. Um, one of the most f- famous pieces by Rauschenberg uh, is a piece that is a quilt up on the wall. And if you go to, I believe it's at the MoMA in New York, you can, it's always there. 
it's at the Met. No, it's at the MoMA. Oh gosh, I'm, gonna, I'm in trouble now. Um, it's one of those two. New York. It's all the same. And <laughs> I'm, I'm a mountain person somewhere now. over there. Oh, over there on the coast, whatever. Uh, but anyway, this this is a really famous piece that he made while he was at Black Mountain College, which is a very for textile artists, for contemporary artists. I mean, Black Mountain College is just this huge great place where a lot of the great thinkers of Europe escaped to the U.S. Um, during during and after World War II. Um, and so many influential artists, um, Josef Albers, who is, of course, the kind of god of color theory, his wife, Annie Albers, who is the, you know, mother of contemporary fiber art and contemporary textiles and weaving as an art, and, of course, a number of other really influential artists, including Rauschenberg, studied there underneath them. And while Rauschenberg was there, he um, made this really famous piece. It's a quilt on the, uh, it's a quilt that's on the wall. It's like a bed. It's called bed piece. And it has like dripping paint down it. He was sort of riffing on sort of contemporary, at the time, abstract painting was super popular in the early 1960s. It was like the most respected and considered like by, um, the Clement Greenberg, the critic at the that was very popular at the time, the most important thing ever was abstract expressionism, and because it was the one of the first uh, popular American forms of contemporary art, it was like so beloved, and Rauschenberg was riffing on it with this um, log cabin quilt that he'd taken out of the laundry, and that log cabin quilt. <clears throat> was made by one of the residents there that happened to be a woman, and he just. He used it in his piece. He didn't cite her, but he used it, and it was considered the quilt itself. While it was a log cabin quilt, which has a very particular history of style of quilting, um, that's particular to America, the American South, and actually that region where Black Mountain College is, is where that textile comes from, right? Well, all those things were just completely abstracted about what was important about it. It was just a bed with a quilt, right? But the history of that actual quilt, if you're a quilter, you look at that quilt and you think, wow, that's an amazing piece. Um, it was actually the artists had on on their bed. Um, he just took it out of the laundry and put it in his piece like it was just another material, like a piece of paint that had no specific cultural context. And to this day, um, it's that story is not actually on the wall in the museum. It just talks about it as a piece of abstract art. And the uh, not long after, the I believe it was the Guggenheim in the 1970s, had an exhibition of quilts. And they um, never named the people who were in the exhibition. They talked about them as uh, abstract shapes and forms, but the actual, um, usually all groups of women who made those pieces, who made those quilts, um, were not recognized as individuals or even as the regions that they came from. And quilts are especially interesting because really until the 1990s when the Guise Benz quilts became very popular body of work and very popular for people to love. I'm sure if you are a quilter or you have been to a museum somewhere in the U.S. in the last 20 years, you've, you've heard or seen Giesbend quilts. Um, and they um, were brought to prominence by a curator who really looked at the region where they came from, the tradition they came from in African-American communities and traditions. And they uh, and the women involved with Giesbend quilts are basically all quilting celebrities if they're still alive. They they tour around and talk about the quilts and tell their stories. But that's like the last 20 years. There's still 200 years before that where most of the artists and communities who produced those quilts were just anonymous, just completely anonymous people, right? And that's not the case with a lot of early American paintings, right? They're very held up as masterpieces, even though many early American painters that we all, that people might know in a folk art museum are people that would essentially paint the body go to a house and then paint in the face, right? Not to say that that's not skilled, but those men are named, right? Mm -hmm. And they were uh, they were craftspeople. And I think because they were men, they got to have their name on things. But women's work, as we know, is often very invisible in the world. And I think that's part of the reasons why quilts specifically get kind of, even today, I would say, in even mm -hmm. Rocky Mountain Quilt Museum, which I love, right? They they have a special show for men who quilt at the Rocky Mountain Quilt Museum every two years, as if it uh, and that's this event, as opposed to the all the time shows, which are predominantly women that are still quilters, and the quilting world is still dominated by women. 
the men in the quilting world that exist tend to become rock stars in the quilting world and get recognized a lot more. And it's to me very strange because it seems like, I don't know, moving backwards. You're listening to Looks Like New. We're speaking with Stephen Frost uh, about textiles. Stick with us and we'll be back. This program is brought to you by the KGNU Listener members and by Quish Sustainable Wealth. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, we're speaking with Stephen Frost, uh, who's an artist and uh, teacher of media studies uh, at the University of Colorado Boulder. We're talking about uh, his work about what's new uh, in textiles. Now, one thing I want to turn to now, and we've alluded to a little bit before, is Colorado Sewing Rebellion. Mm -hmm. Um, What is this thing? This is a ridiculous question for me to ask because I try to go every opportunity I possibly can. Uh, But uh, from your perspective, what is the amazing Colorado Sewing Rebellion? Um, Well, artist Carol Francis Lung, uh, who I have the great pleasure and honor of calling a friend, she, when she was a graduate student, at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, she did a semester abroad in Weimar, Germany. And when she was in Weimar, she was studying sort of East German textile culture and also learning about what uh, daily life was like um, underneath uh, communist rule. And a lot of the clothing, the daily wear, the thing, the, the, the idea of mending was so important <clears throat> during the scarcity of... Um, <clears throat> during the scarcity of um, communist rule Germany. And so a lot of the people that were there at the time and textiles worker, a lot of the textiles for also all of Russia and were produced right there in Weimar, which is really interesting. And so she was really inspired by that culture, uh, the culture of mending and the culture of um, textile production. And she created this performance character called Frau Fiber. And Frau Fiber is a, uh, her performance character is uh, her fictional biography is that she is a former East German textile worker who uh, is too radical for Germany and has had to uh, live in exile in the United States um, and is trying to free us from our sort of um, reliance on the textile industry. Uh, Carol herself, she worked in the garment industry. She's actually a fashion professor uh, right now at Cal State LA. And so she really understands the way that the fashion design and the, uh, as we call it, fast fashion industry um, is really detrimental not only to um, labor um, and uh, the livable wage of people involved with that and their lives, but also environmentally, you know, shifting and moving fabric and dyes across the planet back and forth. I mean, one part of a jacket might be made in Bangladesh and then the other part of the jacket is uh, finished in in um, in China right and so we move that work all around and so the carbon footprint of our textiles every day is really really severe and so she's a graduate student as we do we have very high lofty goals and and uh, you and I are working with grad students we know this this is amazing but she's really it's really funny it's this graduate project she did she started this sewing rebellion in in 2006 in Chicago getting people to come teaching them to mend uh, their clothes to make accessories and to make their clothing and using that the rebellion against the fast fashion industry but also it's sort of a rebellion against the speed of modernity Right. It's sort of a rebellion against the they're rebelling against the way in which we um, consume everything, not just not just fast fashion, but just it's by slowing down and thinking about having to think about just your basic consumption of clothing and textiles. It really does also open your eyes to a lot of other ways in which our consumption uh, is problematic. And when I graduated from graduate school, um, a few years after that, I moved to um, Southern California where she was living. I had seen her lecture uh, in when I was in grad school. Uh, she was in character as Frau, uh, which Frau tends to be very um, task-oriented uh, as being an East German textile <laughs> worker. Um, and so I had seen her lecture in character. Excuse me, I didn't really know her as a person outside of her character. Uh, and when I did finally meet her, uh, I um, are at the behest of one of our mentors said, you guys should be friends. And we were both sort of like, at the time I was making very... A lot of my work was um, 
just lots of crazy, I would call them sequin sculptures. I was just making tons of sculptures covered with sequins with lots of shiny, sparkly things. And uh, Frau's work is often uh, her work outside of, or Carol's work outside of Frau Fiber is like very much um, focused on labor politics. She actually has a radio show in LA that's focused on textile and labor politics and working with labor uh, people involved in the textile industry there in, in LA. And, um, and I was like, I don't know if our practices are going to really mend together. But our mentor was like, you all need to get together. And we did. And, um, and we just started a friendship that is still going. I mean, I talk to her pretty often almost every day and we're working on constantly working on bigger projects together outside of Colorado Sewing Rebellion so I moved here I worked at Sewing Rebellion with her for your, for about two years in um, in California and I became what's called a faux frau where essentially one of the things that we at Sewing Rebellion like to do is to knock off designer um, designer textiles and designer accessories and so uh, I am a knockoff of the original Frau Fiber I'm a faux Frau <laughs> so I'm her knockoff I'm like the imitation version of her and uh, when I moved out here I was um, uh, she's like why don't you you know franchise this like also kind of parodying the fashion industry right like okay why don't we open a brand <laughs> open a branch in colorado um and she was working on doing that in other areas we actually have um people doing sewing rebellion in Asheville and new orleans there's one in um of course there's several in southern california um there's uh gosh they're all over the country Asheville, north carolina there there's so many now um but we moved here, and I happened to move here at about the same time that the Building 61 Makerspace um, was starting up at the Boulder Public Library. And I um, ran into um, Janet Hollingsworth, who's one of the founders of Building 61. She's actually sadly about to leave Building 61. We're going to miss her here in Boulder, I'll just say. She's an amazing person, and she helped design that space. I ran into her and um, at a Chinese New Year's party. <laughs> And I said, I heard you have a makerspace. You have sewing machines in it? And she said, yeah, yeah, we, we'd like to have some sewing machines. And I said, well, hey, I've got this thing. It's called Colorado Sewing Rebellion. And I just pitched it to her at this party. And she's she's a very, like, um, open person and said, okay, cool. Let's talk about it. Let's do it. And then I the library was super supportive and the um, library association, we got uh, eight sewing machines to start us off with. And we brought Sewing Rebellion. And basically what we do here, every Sewing Rebellion in every region is a little bit different, just like a franchise, right? It's like, <laughs> we have a different flavor. We sell different sandwiches here. Um, no, our flavor here in, in Boulder is we do, um, we do very large Sewing Rebellions uh, once a month. It's the first Sunday of every month. And people come in, they bring their mending, but we also have sort of a project of a month. And those project of the months, I sort of design them in a way so that you will leave Sewing Rebellion knowing one sort of basic skill, whether that's putting a zipper in, whether that's being able to sew two pieces of fabric together and turn it inside out and put a um, put a top stitch on it. Um, so we do really small projects at that. And then I also do workshops that are larger, um, that are limited to 12 people, but uh, they're more advanced. So I do, say, fanny pack workshops where everybody gets to make a fanny pack, which is a very popular workshop. Fanny packs are back in. <laughs> I've made so many fanny packs this summer with people. Um, and, uh, you know, we have an upcoming workshop on the 30th where people are going to make uh, crisscross aprons. And uh, I did a workshop in May with uh, gender-neutral summer garments. And we made tunics um, that were... Um, not based on a specific pattern, but on a set of measurements that anybody could figure out with or without having to have knowledge of how to read patterns so that they were very open. Um, and then, of course, yeah, the mending and people coming in and mending their clothes. And it's been a really cool program because people um, from, you know, when you say all walks of life, well, sewing is something that everybody at different ages really interacts with the different levels. There are a lot of little kids that come to it. Um, there's a lot of senior citizens that come to Sewing Rebellion and a lot of cool hipsters that come to Sewing Rebellion as well. There's a lot of grad students that I know um, from other departments randomly through Sewing Rebellion uh, come in and uh, participate and they mend their clothes. You know, they bring their weekly projects. Sometimes people bring in sewing machines they've had in their house for like 10 years and they just don't know how to use it. And um, and you teach a person <laughs> teach a person to thread a sewing machine and they will sew forever that was like the maid that just I made that it up. works that works, works right, right and then we teach them to thread their machine and um 
they get their machine out of the closet and into the sunlight and dust it off and they can uh, start making their curtains and start doing just little things. And it's so funny. Sewing is this thing that you just have to, you start with little stuff. You make a little accessory and then you're like, you know, I think, I think I could make a bag. And then you make that bag and you're like, okay, cool. You have this bag and it's got some real funky stitches on it, but you wear it around and everybody compliments you on it and you say, oh yeah, I made it. Yeah, I picked out that fabric. I did it. And then you sort of just keep it just keeps building. And then before you know it, um, you're, you're making a, like a lot of your clothes as well. You pointed out the other day that, that, um, you know, if, if the companies that sell pre artificially distressed <laughs> jeans, uh, you know, were to be realistic, they wouldn't, they wouldn't put holes in the, in the knees. They'd put them in the crotch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah I did say that. Cause that's where all the holes are. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, so, so where, um, uh, you know, what other lessons do you learn about about uh, uh, our society or about the human race from the perspective of p- the people who come to uh, Sewing Rebellion to fix stuff or to learn something? You know, what kind of dirty sec- secrets are there about um, about us that we don't see because we're not we're not repairing stuff? Oh, my gosh. Well, that's that is really <laughs> what dirty secrets do we what dirty secrets do we learn? Well, the, the gene thing is in, is really interesting, right, because we do. Uh, you know, try to make our jeans look raggedy, you know, that's really hot right now. And um, I think the thing that we learn is that people do want to mend their clothes. Like they do a lot of people, if they have that skill, if they have that desire, people love it. And that people have these really personal connections with the garments that they wear. I think it's maybe something with age. It's definitely like me and the older people that are like, I've had this sweater for 20 years and very proud of it. Um, but I think that there is like a very, and I mean, it's no surprise to anyone. I mean, you think about children having a blankie, right? Mm-hmm. Or having a, a plushie, a stuffed animal, or this yeah. thing that they have this little connection to. And that grows into adulthood. Like you hold a fabric against your skin and you wear it and it becomes part of your identity as you go yeah. out into the world. And that's when that pan- that pair of pants, when you, you know, bend over to lock up your bike or where you're getting putting groceries in the car or something you rip open those pants it's very sad and people come in and they're very sad about their ripped <laughs> shirt or their or whatever and we um you know teach them to love the mend and to love that stitch and that that stitch that you will see like you'll see a mended piece of clothing i mean at least if i do it i'm no master tailor so you're not it's not gonna be like absolutely looks perfect but um and you know people do it themselves the first couple times it doesn't you know it's not pristine and that's great you know i think you learn that people um like bodies you know we have scars right Uh and our and as people learn to love those scars on their bodies they can also learn to love the scars on their clothing and i think that that's been something that uh has been really surprising. Um, uh, no, it's, it, it's amazing. I mean, uh, last time I visited my 94-year-old grandfather, you know, we had very little time together, but he took me to his closet, uh-huh. right? And he just walked me, he just wanted to show me things. And it actually turned out to, I learned a bunch of things about, you know, where he went on his honeymoon that I didn't know, you know. And, oh, cool. Uh, it turns out in Colorado Springs. Uh, and, <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, you know, it was like the history of his life was in that closet. Right. And, uh, and it was just striking afterward. Like, wow, he, that's where he wanted, you know, to take me make yeah. sure I understood, you know, what the, the meaning that these, that these clothes had for him. Mm-hmm. Now, now I want to hear a bit about the library because, yeah. you know, you, you've, you, you've kind of chosen this as, and this has at least been the space that's, that opened up to make this possible. Mm-hmm. Um, what is this? to you say about what a library is for i mean this is this is not you know storing books and 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 it's not kind of the conventional thing people expect a library to be for well a library is a lot of things and i think it always has been i think the library has been a center for new thought for many times this is nothing new i mean when i was i grew up in a very small town there were maybe 700 people in my town and um and i was a funny little queer kid even if i didn't realize it and they had uh, PFLAG meetings there. I'm not really sure who was going to those PFLAG meetings, but there was a poster for them. And I'd see these PFLAG meeting posters. Even when I was a little kid and growing up, I'd be like, that, that's radical. That's cool that they're having these parents and friends of lesbians and gays meeting at our little town library, right? So, And also, you know, there's a real tradition of librarians being the people who've, like, fought for, you know, freedom of speech, 
their librarians are people who help protect our privacy, right? So there is a long tradition of librarians being kind of on the cutting edge, being a little bit more um, with it than everybody else before we get there. Like they're the ones who are there first, usually. Informa they're, you know, they're um, scientists of information in the really, in the really, in the most literal meaning of it. It's amazing. And so libraries today, I think we're really expanding the services that are offered because libraries are also, I think, uh, a center for democracy. They're this uh, free, public, open space for information where, yeah, you can come and rent DVDs uh, for your, um, and you can come and uh, get free internet. Yep, that's true. That is totally true. Um, you, but you can also rent books, and that's great. But I think libraries were really expanding the kind of services that they offer. For many years, libraries have been places where people come to get knowledge. And if we just expand that to things like um, high school diplomas, um, learning Spanish and English and other languages, we're expanding it to um, learning essential skills, which the public schools no longer have the time or space or resources, just resources at all uh, to really give us things like you know woodworking or mending your clothes right those sort of those sort of skills are not really valued in public education and like i said like libraries are a democratic space and the, we're not the only ones that have sewing the republic library has sewing machines we um participated in an international conference um, called the next library conference last year in berlin and met many other libraries from all over the world that are also have you know maker spaces and sewing spaces inside of it and that's not to say that like we have these spaces because you know people don't check out or read books in fact actually studies show that <laughs> book readership has increased um, in the last five years uh but um what really it is it's libraries become like a uh, it is as tax bases are less interested in creating free public spaces and funding kind of civic projects libraries are one of the last things in countries in counties all over the country all over the u.s that exist that have free public space that you can rent rooms for your you know for your whatever club right but there's if you want to see something really if you want to see a cross-section of what is boulder look at what people are doing in the meeting rooms at the boulder public library it's pretty cool um and you're like okay that's you know the bee chicas are meeting this week they're like bee advocates there's the gardeners there's all these other people so you can really kind of understand the community through the library you know church groups have you know prayer meetings there when they can't um meet in their church you know because of different reasons there's all sorts of uh reasons people use the public library across this country and i think that we're just wising up to that, that people have always used the library for different purposes than just books, right? It always has been a meeting space for people. And we're saying, okay, if people come here, if this is a place where people are meeting, let's figure out what services we as a community want to provide, not for the public, but for each other, you know? And that's a big part of it. Uh, the Colorado Sewing Rebellion has been is that we have um, librarians from different departments come and meet in Sewing Rebellion, and now they're friends, right? These people who work in different parts of the community come together, and they sit there, and they mend, and they work on something. And it is. It can be a really slow process. It can be a really frustrating process. You know, you, you mess it up a few times before you get it right, like I said earlier. And in that process, you have people in the room who are maybe more experts who can kind of chime in and help you and the building 61 makerspace has been incredible they have you know laser cutters 3d printers all the things that a makerspace as we understand it should have and the technicians there are there to educate people on how to use those and that it's it's not just the technicians that are there that are teaching them it's also the other participants that are also helping people out with problems and it um, and especially our makerspace really creates this creates a environment where there's everybody's free to offer and receive advice which is really important you know um it's not like a coffee shop you go and sit in and you get on your laptop right you're out there you're working on things you got your you, you know you got your jacket you're trying to put a new zipper in it people see you frustrated it's not on your laptop right it's physical they can see you're frustrated with this zipper project and the person usually from across the room will say hey want some help with that and sometimes it's one of our awesome uh, creative technicians at the boulder public library and sometimes it's um another participant more often than not um and that's been great and i've been really inspired by the work that building 61 does and actually i became a library commissioner last year so if you like what you hear about <laughs> this vision for the libraries you're in luck boulder <laughs> i know uh so yeah I'm, I'm on the library commission for the city now and um and 
all the commissioners are very supportive of Building 61. We are um, in the process of opening a new library in North Boulder, and Building 61 has been such a positive thing for our community because, it, like I said, it's not just my program, but all the programs attract people from different socioeconomic groups, people from different backgrounds, people who are um, otherwise wouldn't really socialize in Boulder, you know, because it's mm -hmm. like even if you're a parent, you socialize with the people from your kid's school, right? And this is like homeschool kids meeting with kids that go to Boulder High and they all get to talk to each other. It's a really, really rare and unique space. And so um, the makerspace really facilitates that also because it doesn't have it has to be quiet there. I, you know, they don't at all. It is go in there on one of their open studio days and it is the most. No shushing. Oh my gosh. It is buzzy, crazy. The energy is awesome. If you want to have like just see the best uh, people in Boulder, it's it's a great place to stop in and check out. You're listening to Looks Like New. We've been speaking with Stephen Frost about what's new about textiles. Uh, stick with us, and we'll be right back. KGNU's Fall Fun Drive is October 9th through the 20th, and we need volunteers to help us answer phones and deliver meals. We're proud of our work to connect communities, but we can't do it without you. Go online to kgnu.org or call us at 303-449-4885 to sign up today. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. And this month, uh, I'm really glad we're talking with Stephen Frost. He's an artist uh, and, and instructor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder and hosts the Colorado Sewing Rebellion at the Boulder Public Library. Now, um, one project you've been involved in lately is um, this past summer, you uh, helped run a, a experimental weaving residency uh, can you tell us a bit about what that is and what happened there? Yeah, there, we have um, our amazing faculty member, uh, Laura Devendorf, who is one of, uh, in the Atlas Institute, she's also an information science professor in uh, CMCI, College of Media Communication Information at CU. Um, I met Laura when she first started teaching here, and we sort of, Laura is very interested in textiles as well, and we were just always talking about potentials of collaboration and what we could do together as, you know, a person. And Laura has an artist's background as well. Um, she's one of those cool people who's been, has like multiple cool degrees. I think she has a studio art degree and a computer science degree. <laughs> she's amazing. And Laura and I had many conversations about what we could do to create sort of a textile-based experimental community inside of CU. And they don't teach textiles in the fine arts department here at Boulder. Um, you have to go up to Fort Collins for that. Um, and so Laura and I applied for a grant from the Center for Craft Creativity and Design in Asheville. And the grant was to launch an experimental weaving residency. We are very lucky that through a collaboration with our colleagues in the astrophysics department, we have a a jacquard TC2 loom here at Boulder. And the jacquard TC2 loom is a remarkable thing because it, jacquard looms are very old technology. Um, when you were talking about Babish earlier, you did leave someone's name out of that story, and I hate to correct you, but Ada Lovelace is a very important part Absolutely. of that narrative as well. And Ada Lovelace was working with Babish as a translator uh, with different forms of language, and she was able to sit to look at um, he was trying to create a compositional, compositional, compositional machine, right? And she was she was the person who said to him, "Hey, we should look at jacquard looms because they're using these punch hole sequences to create right. complex weavings." And he was like, "Oh, dang!" He was, uh, yeah, that's exactly how they talked in the 1700s. He was like, <laughs> "Dang, girl," um, or it was German, something like that in German, right? Uh, Austrian, I can't remember. Uh, and so. The jacquard loom is this ancient, really not ancient, but several hundred years old. And it basically uses, instead of a heddle, a weaving heddle, lifting up an entire row of threads at the same time, it can lift up individual threads to create much more complex designs. A lot of your, you know, a lot of your complex uh, blankets and garments that we see are probably made on some version of a jacquard loom. Um, they're very rare and they're very expensive technology to have. And we are very lucky that through um, Laura's hard work and the hard work of some of our colleagues in astrophysics, 
we have one here at CU. I think it's one of the only ones at a public institution in the state of Colorado. And maybe here in the United States, there's very few. Most of them, you'll find them at private art schools or in private homes. So having it be in a public institution, have access to it was really important. And Laura and I really wanted to figure out how can we... Um, you know, make its presence important and also build uh, bridges between it and our astrophysics department and other departments that are experimenting. So we got this grant to bring in an artist in residency um, and we selected an artist from Finland and she came in um, and her name is Sandra and I am so bad at announcing Sandra's last name. I won't do it. But anyway, Sandra came in and she's this amazing Finnish artist and she came in and she worked to really think about to take her textile design skills. She's a designer. Um, she currently works for Adidas in Germany, and she came in and wanted to think about how she, what what she could bring with her skill set on the Jacquard TC2 loom that would be beneficial to the other people in the lab that we have there. And Laura's lab that she's built is incredible. It's full. Uh, it's a lab based in, you know, connected to an engineering school. The majority of her students are. Um, female and queer identified which is rare in an engineering college and her students are all in some way interested in textile design or sextile development or textile experiments she's and has a few people from the art and art history department that come over and dabble in textiles as well so it's a very interdisciplinary space and in the spirit of that um, sandra came in and she ended up creating these really interesting um uh, collaborations with uh, another colleague from the astro another grad a grad student from the astrophysics department to really create essentially a sleeping mask for astronauts that has sensors uh, integrated into the garment so that you can sleep uh, comfortably as an astronaut but that the sensors that are monitoring you don't have to be stuck onto your skin currently I th from what I understand the current sensors are they use adhesives when you're sleeping which I don't know about you but if I was like I don't. I don't really love putting stickers good. on my face when I'm sleeping. It sounds terrible. Um, go astronauts! You guys are awesome. My kids do, but I'm not sure. If I'm <laughs> Your kids do, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they just sleep through anything too, right? Um, they sleep everywhere. Um, gosh, I'm so jealous of that. But so they basically developed this um, experimental, uh, like a sleeping mask um, that has sensors embedded into it and lots of um, foam and cushioning, so that it actually can still read your do all the same readings, but does you don't have to have like weird intrusive electrodes stuck into like your <laughs> your lobes <laughs> which sounds terrible right um and so and in addition to that sandra and another um artist that was that had come in from um that come in from pittsburgh um they experimented all summer with different designs different ways of you know creating weaves would create different types of circuits so you could say um heat um a textile um, and cool a textile using different weaves circuit weaves which is like incredible right um they also hacked the loom which is crazy because it comes with sort of simple set of software uh that's proprietary and you're pretty much like have to use that and i'm i'm not the tech wizard that a lot of the amazing the brilliant people in uh laura it's called the unstable design lab her lab is and i'm not the i'm not the programming wizard that the other students are um wizards like it's magic but it sometimes is and so um leia who's a student from um carnegie mellon came in the summer as well and worked with sandra and they actually hacked the loom so that you could um, play games with it online so that as you're weaving people could like disrupt what you're weaving uh they created a, a design where it, the loom could read images in a live feed so you could actually weave a live feed into the loom it's really hard to explain on the radio almost <laughs> impossible actually um but basically they're really thinking about what is the potential for weaving today and what are the current applications for it and it seems endless and the students come in and they're so excited we have students that are working on like developing asmr garments we have students who are trying to develop garments that would be um, low waste garments because a lot of the times when we do create something on a loom there's a lot when you cut out your pattern design there's a lot you throw away and textiles can't really be recycled that easily they have to be shredded they might can be insulation i know that there's companies that are selling like gene insulation now that's a hot thing i'm not really sure how environmental that actually is i hope it is i hope it's great but they are um 
this um, uh, one student is trying to develop ways in which we would kind of pulling from actually some older traditions, some really old textile traditions that are, have been lost and have not really been paid attention to in an industrial complex of weaving the actual fabric, weaving the garment design into the fabric, and then in a way so that you, when you cut it out, you have the least amount of waste possible, which is super interesting. And I mean, this is a technique which actually was very popular in the 70s. It was called like sewing on the loom or whatever. And there's tons of books about it. And when I told the student, I was like, there's a book from the 70s about that. She, they were like, amazing. <laughs> so now we have all those books in the lab. And, you know, we're looking at these 70s weaving books and working with state-of-the-art digital equipment and it has that integration just as our students come from a wide variety of places you know we have um, the unstable design lab has upcoming uh, collaborations with the hand weavers guild um, which is a very traditional group here in boulder it's full of some of the most brilliant weavers i've ever met and i I feel very like um, sheepish calling myself a weaver around them because I very much feel like a novice compared to these people who have been weaving for 50 years and are just complete masters uh, they uh, they're also starting we're starting to build collaborations with them so to say that our influence is like interdisciplinary inside of CU we're also trying to build something in the unstable design lab and the experimental weaving residencies also about thinking about how can institutions collaborate with um, professional artisans like the hand weavers guild or people who are from coming from industry like uh, Sandra coming uh, coming in um, from Finland and really working with us so what are the what are the ways in which the actual metaphor of weaving can be expanded outside of the school you know two yeah. different, different things coming together making a stronger uh, a stronger garment well it's it's uh, amazing how you're kind of uh, uh, finishing that circle about the uh, the relationship between the computer and the and the textile um, uh, returning the textile to uh, uh, to the computer kind of feeding that that relationship and it reminds me too thank you for the correction about Ada Lovelace you know one thing that she contributed um, uh, it, to to their collaboration uh, with Charles Babbage was the recognition that this computer wasn't just a computational mm -hmm. engine that it, it was actually something that um, could be kind of universal in its applications yes. and it seems like you're doing that too with with textiles is is uh, recognizing that this practice that has often been gendered often been marginalized um, um, put in a put in a kind of box is something that can uh, uh, can address uh, uh, any kind of problem even you know something like uh, 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 sensors for astronauts you know things that uh, you wouldn't normally expect so it's a it's a beautiful connection um just really quickly can you give us a sense of what you're sewing on now what's coming up next <laughs> month at the sewing rebellion quickly before we have to go yeah absolutely so of course we do we have sewing rebellion the first sunday of every month and uh next month in well at the end of this month i do have a, I have a workshop i think registration is open for it now we're making um we are making what's called crisscross, or they're actually called uh, textile workers aprons because they don't have any ties. It actually just kind of drapes over you in a really cool way, so that your uh, you know apron strings don't get caught in any machinery, which is you know a big a big problem in hipster kitchens. Um, so we have to make those. Um, we also have uh, in October we have several events coming up that are going to be focused on costume making and costume design. Uh, we have of course the sewing rebellion. We're going to be making really cute little. We're going to be making like animal ears and animal tails for our big sewing rebellion project the first uh, Sunday of October. And then the following day, we actually have an intermediate workshop where people can bring in uh, textile patterns that they've purchased or uh, fabric that they've purchased and they want to work on a more advanced, like a cosplay outfit or something for Halloween. We're going to have a workshop where I'll be there and a couple other um, people who know how to do garment construction will be there working on that together. Um, we also have... Um, we also have a couple um, upcoming events in December. We're going to be doing a special event for um, CS Ed Week at the library, which is actually a, uh, a workshop you can sign up for that I'll be leading um, where I talk about Ada Lovelace and Babish. And we actually do learn about compositional, compositional thinking through um, weaving. So we have these little hand looms, and I sort of teach people about coding with a hand loom. So it's a, if you are afraid of coding, 
Uh, this is a good little workshop for you. If you love, if you're crafty, but you're afraid of computers, there's no computers involved. We're going to talk about computers and introduce this idea of using uh, drafting, making a weaving draft. So basically designing what your weaving will look like and connecting that back to the ideas of coding for a computer. And we're going to actually be making little, little weavings and learning about like, you know, twill and basket weave and all the basic weaves that exist in the weaving world. And so bringing those two things together. I think that's on December 9th um, at the Boulder Public Library. Um, in addition, we always have other events going on in my own studio practice. I have some upcoming projects with um, the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art, which I can't tell all the details of yet, but I'm very excited. Uh, if you are in downtown Boulder next year, hopefully you'll be seeing seeing some more of me. Fantastic. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about uh, new tech. We've been speaking with Stephen Frost, uh, who's an artist and teaches in media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, we've been talking about what's new about textiles. And I'm Nathan Schneider. I also teach in media studies at CU Boulder. Looks Like New is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at cmci.colorado.edu slash medlab. If you liked this show, uh, please spread the word about us and consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also love to hear from you with comments and guest ideas. You can reach me at medlab, M-E-D-L-A-B, at colorado.edu. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you'll join us next month.